I have had at least three cups of coffee. So, if I seem... If I'm talking too fast, just let me know. Or just throw a bottle of water at me to kind of flush some of the caffeine out of my system. How about that? <laughs> Very good. Well, just give me a few moments to get set up here. As you heard earlier, we're going to be talking about the role of the Christian family in shaping the national conscience. Um, but before we get started, let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you, we thank you, and we praise you for every single opportunity to gather, to gather in your name and to gather around your word. Your word tells us that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, that you would be there in the midst. And Lord God, the fact that you're everywhere anyway, the fact that you decide to make yourself uniquely and specially available around those who would gather in your name and those who would obey you, Lord God, does our heart well. Because it means that you have something unique in sight for us. And we want, Lord God, whatever that is, we want it. Whatever you have to offer, Lord God, you're a loving God. Your word tells us that um, who, who among us would ask their father for a piece of bread and they would give them a stone. Or would ask for a fish and they would in turn give them a scorpion. And you gave us that analogy, Lord God, just to prove that you that if we, as the fathers of an earthly nature, can give good gifts to our children, how much more will you, being our loving Heavenly Father? And so, Lord God, it is based on that that we ask you to give us exactly what we need. You know where each one of us sits, Lord God, in our, our respective family configurations and what's pressing against us and what's looming ahead that we may not even know about. You know, Lord God, what things have recently shaped our perspective and what we're coming out of. You know, oh God, for us as individual members of the family, what um, is going on in our hearts that we can't even articulate yet in prayer. And so, Lord God, we beg you to give us exactly what we need. Open our eyes to the truth of your scripture that we might be better prepared to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me in them to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians. We're going to be focusing our attention for this first message on chapter 3, verse 18, uh, right up to verse uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 18, and then reading and moving all the way over to chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, before we read that, I want to just kind of say some things to you. The most powerful people in the country and in the world are not sitting in Washington. They're not sitting in Hollywood. Uh, they're not sitting somewhere in Manhattan. But some of the most powerful people in the world are sitting right here in this room. The most powerful people in the world are not uh, Democrats or Republicans, when indeed they are actually Christocrats. And we'll explain who they are uh, in, in a few moments. But I want you to understand that I don't care how far removed or how distant you might be from you know, the, the, the major goings-ons in our world, you know, sometimes you feel um, not involved because you're not really, like, politically savvy, right? You don't know all of the, the rules, right? Many of us have been, you know, kind of sucked into the television or wherever it is we watch the confirmation hearings. Like, we don't even know what some of these jobs are, but we know we need to be watching that in some of these interviews, right? Um, we're just finding ourselves uh, in a position where it's like, man, am, am I really involved? Is this on? I just want to make sure this is on. Is it on? Nope. I think it's on. Muted. Did we? Green there we go. Good. Green is good. Let's go back. Here we go. All right. There we go. The most powerful people in the world are not. No, I'm just kidding. 
Um, so, so the position that, that, that families play are critical in our culture. And we're going to talk about that from the vantage point of God's word. And if, one of the first ways that I like to point that out to you is that in the Bible, it is routine for the lens of the Holy Spirit to kind of turn its focus onto the family. Uh, when we look at the book of Colossians, we see the Apostle Paul writing a message from prison, and he's really talking about the supremacy of Christ and also working against Gnosticism that is at work within the church. So there's some big issues that are there. there we've got we've to make sure that the church understands exactly who Christ is and how he's supreme. But then as he closes that, he takes aim and focuses in literally and very closely on the family. And he doesn't just give the family a passing glance or references like, and families, remember this and do it well. But he specifically outlines and speaks to each member of the ancient Near Eastern family and what their responsibility is in, in, in light of what has just been preached or what has just been shared. Understanding how the Bible would have been read during the uh, New Testament era as the churches were just being formed, uh, this letter would have arrived and whoever would have been the uh, person to receive it there at Colossae would have stood up and read this alongside uh, a reading of the Old Testament so that they would have understood that this is equally as authoritative. That's what would have happened there if there wasn't a local uh, uh, elder uh, teaching alongside. But but nevertheless, this book would have been read this way. And then there's this passage that speaks directly to the family. And so you'll see this time and time again uh, in the book of Ephesians. There's a the camera lens of scripture turns toward the family and tar- starts to talk to specific roles in the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord and his talking about renewing his covenant with Israel and the things that they need to do. He turns the lens of scripture toward the family. The Bible never leaves the family out of the conversation. And so if the Bible never leaves the family out of the conversation, then we should never leave the family out of the conversation. So as we think about what's happening in our world politically, many people have positions and opinions and they're sitting. They find themselves uh, really awkwardly sitting on different sides of the aisle and not wanting to really verbalize who they voted for because they don't know what that'll say or how that'll impact their relationships. And so I believe that the, the, the time that we live in is incredibly opportune for us to share the gospel because people want to know what side we're on in almost everything. And what better opportunity or what better chance we have to talk about we're on Christ's side. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a I'm not a Republican. I don't I don't exclusively fit in any one of those boxes. I'm a Christocrat. What? How ridiculous is that? Now we have an opportunity to share the gospel, but not just articulate the words found on the pages in first Corinthians chapter 15 verses one through five. But we have an opportunity to connect the dots of what the gospel means in light of what people are seeing. And so that's why I want to spend a lot of our time um, over the next three to four messages or however many I'm I'm able to get in. But I want to spend my time there talking about the unique and precious role of the family within the framework of what's happening in our country. So let's read uh, Colossians chapter three, beginning with verse 18, all the way through um, that final deposit there in verse uh, one of chapter four. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your, provoke, your, provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service, or, or eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not to men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the, um, you serve the Lord Christ. 
But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. And in that final verse, which should be a part of chapter 3, you do realize that the chapter and verse numbers are not inspired by the Holy Ghost, so I hope you don't take offense to me saying that that should be a part of chapter 3. <laughs> in, in verse 1, chapter 4, it says, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you have also a master in heaven. I hope you can kind of see how that's part of that same continuity of thought. When we talk about the Christian family, why is it such a privileged role? Um, one of the, the things that I like to point out here is that within the American landscape, there are at least five houses. You probably you may have heard of these before. There is the White House, which is the headquarters of what? The uh, political administration. There is the Supreme Court or the courthouses, which are the, uh, uh, the, the, the heartbeat of morality in our country. Really, that's where we ultimately, as a society, say what we think is right and wrong, right? Once something gets adjudicated and appealed all the way to the top, these people who sit on the Supreme Court benches, they, they tell us what is right and wrong and, and how things should really go. So then it is the headquarters of uh, judicial administration, the schoolhouse, our great collegiate institutions. They are what? The headquarters of intellectual contemplation, our biggest and best and, and most crisp and sharpest minds are, are there. And then they are deployed into the rest of the world to tell us everything that we're supposed to know. And then, of course, there is the Lord's house, which is the headquarters of gospel declaration. And we're going to do some of that today. But then even more importantly, there's your house. And what's your house responsible for? Just kind of making sandwiches and getting people off the school on time. Hmm? Vacuuming. Making sure that the pets are properly, you know, taken out and rotated. Is that is that what the American family is for? Socking away a little bit of money, keeping the roof from leaking? No. Your house is the most important amongst all of these because your house is the headquarters of gospel application. The headquarters of gospel application. So here I stand in here and I preach and I talk and I teach and others uh, will come who who have that responsibility in local church. And and, and we declare what thus saith the Lord. And, and we, we, we chop up the scriptures and we share these different pieces. But it is in the Christian home where the gospel gets legs. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that? Because the scriptures rarely ever have a conversation about the gospel and not draw it down to what the family's responsibility is in applying it. We were having a conversation back from the airport last night and just talking about how many of us find ourselves witnessing and sharing in the marketplace. And sometimes it seems as if when we share the gospel with our friends, family members and co-workers, it doesn't always have the kind of connectivity that we had hoped for. And that is because America is well acquainted with gospel declaration. No strangers. I mean, most people that we encounter have had some kind of touch, either if they've just seen a sign at a basketball game, John 316, if they've seen a track on a restaurant table that says, you know, Jesus loves you or a bumper sticker that says, follow me to, you know, something or, or a place like that. I mean, people have some general understanding of the word, but the word gospel gets a lot of rotation in our culture. And the themes and the imagery of Christianity get a lot of rotation in our culture. But it is in the Christian home that gospel gets application. And so when people get a chance to observe our lives and observe our home life and our family context and our family structure, that's where the, the, the gospel begins to, 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 to play with a new sense of significance. That's where the gospel begins to come through in high definition. And so we'll see that some of that in just a minute. When we talk about your house, remember this. So when we look at this particular passage of scripture, it's at the back of the book. 
And so while the house or our house doesn't seem to be that significant in terms of being it's it's at the bottom in terms of visibility, but it is at the top of the list when it comes to vitality. Rick recognized that all of the other homes that I just talked about, all the other houses, whether it's the uh, Supreme Court justice or whether it's the head of education or whether it is the president or any of his cabinet members, all of those people came from someone's house. They passed through the courthouse. They passed through the schoolhouse to get their various credentials. But before anything, they sat around the table and they had dinner, breakfast, lunch and dinner at someone's home. They were part of families, and that's why families are so important, because every single person that's driving anything in our country or having any credible conversation, they started having their values shaped in a home. The question is, what kind of home? Was it a Christ-centered home? Was it a home where the gospel was in ready and visible application? And that determines who gets deployed into our colleges and becomes our teachers. That determines who gets deployed in all of our various career facets, right? So everyone starts out in a home. And that's why the home is so super powerful, even though it may seem to be seemingly insignificant and invisible. Not only that, but while uh, the Christian family is at the bottom of the list in terms of immediate impact, it's at the top of the list in ultimate impact. If you identify, if we were to go around the room and raise our hands and say, here is a deficiency in our culture. This is what I think is wrong with America. This is where I think we're going off the rails. This is where I think we're destroying our country. You can draw not a dotted line, not a squiggly line, but a straight line from whatever that deficiency is back to something that's wrong with the American family. A direct line, a solid line, a bold line directly back to the family. You want to talk about the abortion epidemic in our country? It comes back to the family. Did we start having conversations around where life begins or did we let a biology professor do that for us? Did we start having early conversations, not just around, well, that's just no, we don't do that here. Or did we start having real and early conversations about the value of human life and why it has value? Not just because we like our particular brand of life. Not because we like how our career is going. If you think about it, right, we build up our young people and we begin to uh, behaviorally, if they listen to us talk, values aside, if they listen to us, they believe that their core function is to go to school, get great grades, to get great jobs, to get great salaries and to do better life than we did. That seems like the non-negotiable. That seems like the, 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 the marquee item. If I'm a kid, that seems to be what I, I, I want to be launched out of this household and do better than mom and dad. And so anything that gets in the way of doing better, if that happens to be a baby, has got to get out of the way because the non-negotiable is to get up out of here, earn more money, get a better job and do better. Does that make sense? How the family plays a critical role and how we shape what should happen with a life that is found, uh, you know, a, 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 a life that is that, that is that is that is that is born, a life that is conceived and it may not be conceived on a schedule that I had planned because we are people that preach schedule, preach. We preach tasks and objectives and things that have to get done and don't let anything get in the way of that. We set the climate for that in our family context. Of course, there are other factors also that work toward the diminishing of human life. And that is when we allow conversations of our origin to be dictated by our academic institutions, 
that we know don't align with Christian value propositions. When the, when the first formal conversation of evolution is had in the classroom rather than at our dinner table, where we get a chance to give context to the first conversation, we wonder why we find ourselves at a loss of trying to demonstrate, well, wait a minute, you're, you're of more value than, you're, you're, you're different from an animal, and now you're struggling to logically discern it because we didn't have the conversation on the front end. The family is super important in every facet of life. Even in the Bible, the first time that something is mentioned begins to contextualize all of the further and even the final mentions. The first time the family appears on the scene is in the book of Genesis. Therefore, we know that any further uh, uh, articulation of family life has to be framed around the first time we saw it there in the book of Genesis. But when we dispense with the first time that it was mentioned, we have difficulty reining back in any departures from it in further mentions. The family then becomes the first mention in the lives of, of our children for almost every topic, unless we're too embarrassed to address that. And we decide to outsource it to another organization. And then we're surprised with the finished product we get back. So we have an incredible position as the Christian family. The first uh, position that we hold is that is we are we serve as the hinge in society. We are the hinge between covenant with God and righteous community with our fellow man. How do we know that? One of the first, uh, one of the earliest mentions of the family in the Bible, specifically in, in terms of covenant, is in the book of Exodus. When the Ten Commandments are rolled out right in between the top set, which is about how to have a vertical relationship with the Lord, and the bottom set, which is about horizontal relationship with the fellow man, the family is thrown right there in between. Remember? I mean, let's look at it, right? So it's Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 12. Remember the seventh day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor. Uh, and you should do all your work. But on the seventh day, the Sabbath is holy to the Lord and you should do no work, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor uh, your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger that is within your gates. So the same group of people, both from from mom, dad, kids and servants were addressed there in Genesis chapter 20 as a part of how to effectively apply the Ten Commandments. So as every so as God is laying foundation for society, he doesn't just dispense rules. He also says, and here's the context and what it looks like and which it should be applied. Families cannot outsource solid Bible teaching to the church. We can't outsource it. We got to echo it. We have to we have to apply it. Families cannot outsource uh, 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 the implementation of biblical truths to just you go over there to youth group. They'll get you on track. No, it's got to be applied. It's got to be exercised in the home so that it doesn't seem like an outlier or anomaly or it doesn't seem like it's unique to the building. I mean, it happens, right? All of us, if you have a career, like there's certain personas and attitudes that we take on uh, uh, at the job or at that place that we don't adopt in other places. So we are creatures who just like to compartmentalize behavior systems based on the building that gave them to us. And so we change motifs every time we change buildings. This is how I'm at school. This is how I'm at work. This is how I'm here. And this is how I'm at church, because the church has been allowed to live exclusively under the steeples. But the church, but the family is able to give perpetuity and continuity to what's taught under the steeple because it puts in context what happens under all of those other roofs. Does that make sense as to why the family is so important? Everybody convinced that the family is important? Great. 
All right. So the family is the hinge between covenant with God and righteous relationship with fellow man. The Lord sandwiches it right in between how to treat my fellow man, like no cheating, stealing, killing, um, none of that. No coveting, right, comes immediately after he tells us what to do in family, but right in between how he tells us he wants us to respond to him. Honor the Lord your God. Have no graven images before me. Don't take my name in vain. All of those parlay right into, oh, not oh, by the way, but and honor your father and mother. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The family is right there. Also, we see the Bible placing a high premium on the family in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and all your strength. And then he doesn't leave. He just says lob that out there in Deuteronomy chapter six. He says, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, but not just there. But in verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lay down and when you rise up. So that's my bed, my nightstand, my dinner table, just whatever, whatever the various rooms of our house should be committed to some kind of godly dialogue. That was the Lord's expectation on the heels of saying you should love me with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. So he lays out this very lofty command. Love me with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. And he says, oh, by the way, the platform where that gets practiced. Let's start it here. Let's 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 talk about this at bedtime. Let's talk about it at dinner time. Let's talk about this when we're playing Yahtzee and Monopoly and Jenga. In the way, let's talk about that on the way to school. Let's talk about that on the way back from practice. He says to, to, to put it before the frontless of your eyes and tie it around your wrist. Let's make some wristbands and jewelry out of that. How do we love the Lord our God without our heart, mind, soul and strength? He doesn't talk about going getting some humongous FedEx Kinko's banner. Or standing up a ton of programs. He immediately takes focus on the family as the place where we can practice that. So then, we know that the family is important. And then now we look at the family here as it's outlined for us in Colossians as the headquarters of gospel application. As we look at these roles that are outlined, I always love this when I see this, how he calls out wives, husbands, children, fathers. So he not only calls us out relative to the roles, he pulls us out to the relative to the roles we play, right? And then he calls us out in terms of, I mean, just he, he tries to anticipate, not tries, he anticipates all the configurations in the family, things that bump up against the household and outside. So look at this portrait of the Christian family. The first thing is the Christian family is everyone is intentionally in view. All members of the family here, whether it's husbands, wives, children, uh, uh, servants, whether you have a housekeeper, a maid, uh, a contractor who comes out, a, a live in, a, a nanny. I don't care what you have. Every single person plays some kind of role in bearing the load of the gospel. In its application, they may say, well, I don't see the word gospel mentioned there, but the whole book is predicated on demonstrating the supremacy of Christ and providing uh, and providing a defense against agnosticism. So what else is he talking about? Just housekeeping? No. It, it, the gospel is clearly in view. All members bear the load of modeling the gospel and all members are pointed out beyond their general connection to the congregation. Notice that he doesn't just refer to them as dear brothers and sisters and saints of the of the assembly at Colossae. He starts calling names. Jim, 
you need to start doing this toward your wife. Sarah, you need to start responding this way toward your husband. Kelly, you need to start doing this toward your dad. Right. He starts calling names and roles in particular. So every role has an opportunity to bear the load of the gospel. So listen, so everyone is intentionally in there and everyone is intimately in there and everyone is unconditionally there. When I say this, everyone is intentionally there and why these roles are important. I don't know. If, I don't know what kind of traditions leave within your family context. But in the family context that I grew up in, uh, in the black family, it is very matriarchal in nature. In other words, grandmas are like super powerful. <laughs> grandmas are super powerful and they're and they're and they're like uh, and because they're super powerful, we kind of defer to them for all things spiritual. They're the ones who pray the most and they command like a huge role. So much so that it looks as if, well, if grandma is on post praying, no one else needs to pray until like she's gone. It's like, oh, who's now the senior most person with the most experience in the Bible and is most faithful at the church? You. You now do what grandma used to do. And this is the kind of configuration. This is what we've done to the modern family. Whoever has the most experience and exposure with that, uh, you're the most spiritual among us. You, you try it. But the real Christian family, everybody bears the load of preaching the gospel. Everybody bears the load of, 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 of applying the gospel. Every single person is in view. Wives have a role. Husbands have a role. Children have a role in modeling the gospel. What are these models? Now, here's some of the gospel implications that I want you to see. Uh, uh, wives model the gospel because they demonstrate submission amid other options, submission amid other options, because he says, wives submit to your husband. That is not all that wives do. But there is a unique button in gospel application that is pressed when wives submit. Now, here's what's powerful about the Christian home. Have you ever heard of the power of deja vu? The power of deja vu, right? Deja vu in French means. I've already seen that. I've seen that before. I've been here before. Right. That's what deja vu is. So the power of the Christian family is that when those who we've been sharing the gospel with or those who have just been uh, in a in a culture where gospel is they're getting exposed and they come and they see a Christian family in action and they see a Christian wife submitting to her husband, their hearts go, man, I've seen that before. Where where have I seen or heard of somebody who submits willingly, not because they're under pressure, but even though they have other options? Oh, that's how Jesus lived. Although he being in the form of God made it not, uh, he, he made himself with no reputation. It wasn't a big thing that he was, he was equal with the Father. But he took upon himself no rep, took upon himself a form and was made in the fashion of men and became a servant. Who is the ultimate among submission when, uh, when they absolutely have other options? The Lord Jesus. So wives uniquely model the gospel in the way that they respond to their husbands. So check this out. In a culture where our girls are being raised to be saying, you don't need a husband, you don't need a man, he's just trying to take from you, make sure you sign a prenup, all of them cheat, all of them are liars, just make sure you protect yourself. What kind of gospel modeling are we setting up for that little girl who eventually gets married? We're not setting up a family where a wife is prepared to model the gospel the way she submits. Her submission will be conditional, opportunistic and not amid other true options. So then the so gospel application gets diffused when the family gets defective. Does that make sense? So then. Why submit the word submission there is the Greek word. Anybody know? Hupatasso. 
It's a military term. Hupatasso is a military term, which means to arrange or to align oneself based on the role that you play within the unit. Now, what's interesting about Hupatasso is probably one of the best applications that I've ever seen uh, uh, modeled kind of in my just in my workplace experience is a good friend of mine by the name of Charlie Romaley. Charlie Romaley uh, does not or did not like the president that he was deployed under two times to Afghanistan. He was uh, two times. Uh, we worked together. I've worked with Charlie. I've worked the same company for 17 years, worked with Charlie for about five or six of those years uh, directly uh, as a peer. And I'll never forget. Charlie hated the president, had nothing good to say about him, did not agree with the war, did not agree with anything. But he was a service member. And when he got his orders to deploy, I will never forget. I was like, man, are you angry? He was like, well, I don't agree with the president, but this is what I signed up for. He understood who Picasso. He understood. He was like, I'm, I'm, I, he says, this, the piece is, I don't like the person, but I understand the role that I play. I'm going to Afghanistan. And so not only did he go, but he went twice. The first time he went, he was at the height of his career. He was about to hit the point where uh, you start making the six-figure salary and you get the free trip to Mexico. And he was—he had plenty of reasons to be, to be angry about the fact that he was in the reserves. He gets back. The next time he gets called up, not only is he at a high point in his career, but he's about to get married. And he gets deployed again. But never once did he say, I don't want to go. It was like, I might not agree with the president, but this is what I signed up for. He understood Hupatasso. This is what I signed up for. When I walked into this relationship and said that I would uh, uh, support my country in this way, I understood that there was an arrangement. There was a role, and the role includes not just college money or whatever the case may be. The role includes being deployed. And while I hope that may never happen, I'm submissive to that. And if you think about it, every single one of us at some facet and place in our lives know how to do hupatasso. We just don't think about submission in that way. We've just allowed it to become the church's dirty word relative to wives when that's not really the truth. The reality is, if there was anybody who knew how to submit under other options, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, is there any other way to just can we let this cup pass me? Do I have to even sip this? Do I have to go to the cross? Nevertheless, not my will. These are Jesus' words. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. Submission amid other options. Submission is not unique to wives in conservative homes. It's not unique. We as men, too, find ourselves in roles of submission. But what the beautiful things about the home is that the, the lens of Scripture has given the wife the unique honor of being able to model that. And then look at husbands. It says husbands love husbands love your wives. Right. And do not be bitter toward them. Now, if the scriptures choose to speak to it, it must mean that there's a propensity not to do it. It says husbands love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. So what is the husband modeling of the gospel? What kind of deja vu is the is the husband offering the world who would look into the Christian home for gospel application? Here it is. Husbands are loving amid other options because they have other ways that they can get things done. Anybody seen the movie The Robot and Frank? The Robot and Frank. Anybody saw that? You saw that? Of course. We watched it together. If I can get in here real quick. Robot and Frank is about an older man in the future. Right. 
older man in the future. He would be like, like I would be 70, right? It's like that time. Uh, talking to his kids on like Skype on a big screen TV. His kids have grown up and gone. They're like past college. So mine's 15 and 13. So like, you know, they were professionals or whatever. He was home by himself. Uh, his wife was gone, had left him, was working at the library. I hope that's not my, my future, but, but I was following this movie and the son, uh, had this really cool, um, technology based job. And one of the things that they had started to do for older people at that time was to get them a robot as a caretaker. The robot was several clicks above a pet, um, but not quite like a, a, an authentic, like a, wasn't like a girlfriend. Uh, or anything like that, but it could plant gardens, it could shave, it could groom, it could cook. Uh, uh, the robot could do all these different things. It would bring out cheeses and, and wine, and it had all these great hospitality notions or whatever. And I was just, I watched the movie and I loved it. And I was like, man, but the heartbreaker, the point of the movie was that, um, um, Frank used to be a cat burglar and he started to recruit the robot who kind of had to do his bidding to go out with him at night and help him to rob homes. And so when his kids found out that he was manipulating the robot, they unplugged it. And it just broke Frank's heart. And it broke my heart because I was like, man, I felt like I was Frank. I could see myself being that guy with this cool robot who, after my kids are gone, that is like doing whatever, all the stuff I want to do, flying remote control stuff and, you know, just fishing and, you know, just just a robot to do all that with when I'm older. Right. Because my kids are just big time, you know, gone. And so then I, I really started to look at it and I, and I realized that I wasn't Frank, that I was probably more like the robot. And what reminded me that I was more like the robot, and here's where I'm going, is that Frank, the, the, the robot was so advanced that Frank felt like he and the robot loved each other. But the robot didn't love him. The robot just had a really sophisticated algorithm that knew to do all the right behaviors that looked like love. And so and the reason I, think, I, I say this is because one night as a bonehead, uh, my wife was pregnant with our first child. This is pillow talk. And she goes, Roderick, would you ever cheat on me? And I was like, I was like, ah, this is the pregnancy talking. I was like, all right, let me, let me, I was like, let me. And I said, I said, of course not. I said, the Lord would kill me and he would take me out of ministry. And she started to weep. And I was like, what? I said, that's not the right answer? No? No, because of God? What's going on? How can that not be the right answer? And she was like, I, and I could hear between tears and whimpers, but I thought you wouldn't cheat because you love me. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the <laughs> I'm shaking her head at me. But the, I was, that was year two, man, year two or three. I'm, I'm so much better now. I'm like a year 19 almost. But what I'm getting to is husbands love even amid other options. In other words, I'm the robot because I had a right answer algorithm. And there's many ways that as a husband, you can have the right answers and the right actions, but they not come from the right place. You're working from just a traditional algorithm. Husbands can be home and they can show up well. They can press all the buttons. They can have the punch list. This guy is providing. He's home on time. He's keeping my car washed. The oil has changed. The refrigerator is full. He'll bounce the kids on his knee. Uh, Tuition is being saved for. He is ticking off the list of all fatherly and husbandly responsibilities. But he could be operating out of an algorithm if it isn't driven by the gospel. 
You so, so the gospel calls us to love not as a condition or as an algorithm, but even though we may have other strengths that we could apply in the moment, I'm just a, I'm just doing this because I'm just a dad and I'm a husband. This is what we do. No, it should be driven by something more genuine. And so the gospel calls husbands to love that way so that we don't become robots of provision. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ that models it. I mean, think about it. The the father. Here's here's the gospel implication. Why do husbands want to love that way? The father can manage and maintain and take out the trash on the planet. Without necessarily having heartfelt love for the attendants or the renters. Can he not? I mean, can God cannot God just take care of his building like a great landlord and have no care for the tenants? But the gospel demonstrates that God is clearly doing something more than just spinning the world and maintaining the schedule of seasons. He's doing more than just making sure that the seas stay in their place and that the moon wakes up on time. He's loving human beings amid other strengths. He is the omnipotent God, not limited in capacity in any way, but chooses to love people that have a propensity not to love him back. Husbands get a chance to model the gospel because it is not a contingency on wifely performance. And the wife's submission is not a contingency on husbandly performance. Do you know what that does in the world? When children see husbands loving amid other strengths and wives submitting in Christ, you know what it does? It deploys young professionals into the workplace that will respect a boss, even if I don't like his personality. I don't like his performance, but he's my boss. It doesn't mean that I set myself up to be abused in the American workplace. But what it does mean is that I can sit behind my desk and not have to be liked or to or or have the person to feel like I'm having the time of my life in order to get my job done and to be a worker that works with integrity. Does that make sense? How husbands and wives who model that kind of love and submission set the tone for that in the household. And that's what we're deploying into the school. The teacher that I don't like. Guess what? They've already been trained that respect is not performance contingent. Children, it points to them. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Uh, What I would love for our young people in the room to know is that obedience is an investment. It's an investment. It seems slightly insignificant and sometimes painful in small deposits, but over time it grows huge and it pays huge dividends. Adults will know this if they have a 401k or an IRA or they made a mistake like what I did back in the day. And that was I um, changed cities and banks, but forgot to change my direct deposit. Right. You're going to probably think I'm an idiot for this or a genius. Um, So we were living in Detroit. Uh, My wife and I decided to move from Detroit back to Atlanta. And uh, so I called the company. Uh, I wasn't changing companies, but we found a new bank. We wrote ourselves a check from a checking account, put it in a new place. Right. You get it right. Grown folks are getting the logistics here. Um, I called my company or and they sent me the new forms to sign up for direct deposit. And I they only made the direct deposits for my checking account, but not my savings. And so I look back at our finances after like several months and I'm like, something doesn't feel right, but I can't put my finger on it. And finally, I do some further investigation and found out that I had made a mistake and I was depositing money in Michigan. And I had made a mistake and saved like ten thousand dollars. 
But to me, that's what obedience is. It's these small incremental deposits that don't seem to make sense or be significant in the moment. Because I was like, "Eh, something's missing, but I can't put my finger on it. Now, some of you are probably saying like, dude, you need to get better control of your finances. You should have been able to find that. (laughs) But you you ruined my illustration. (laughs) What, What I'm getting to is that, you know, hey, you're you're just. Putting away, when you obey your parents in the Lord, you're making these small deposits, these small character deposits that not only is build, you're, you're not, uh, yeah, there's favor to be had with the Lord. You're not winning salvation. That comes only through submission to Christ and, and accepting him in the heart. But there is something that happens in the character when we make small, when we make these small deposits of obedience and it, because it begins to build favor. The Lord says that it is the first commandment with promise. Children, obey your Lord, in the, in, obey your parents in the Lord for this right. This is the first commandment with promise that it might be well with you in the land. So the Lord ties a promise of future providence to present day obedience. You're making deposits. You're making investments. And it seems like some incidental, insignificant moment. It just seems like sweeping and room cleaning and dog taking outing. Right? It just seems like these little incidental things. But they pay huge dividends in terms of the character. When you're sitting around and you can't figure out why you've got a friend who at every turn has a reason to just disobey their parents. And it's like, this person must be from another planet. Who does that? Or when you're in the American workplace and there are no parents and you're contemplating cheating on your taxes, there's something about the small incremental deposits of obedience as a child that speaks to you and go, that just isn't the way life is done. And it eventually catches up with you or it eventually pays off big. Obedience is a deposit. It's a it's an investment strategy, not an economic one, but a one of character proportion. The scripture also calls on fathers. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This one right here is a heartbreaker. You're probably going to, you might even end the conference after um, I do this. Uh, when it comes to dads and development, fathers, here it is. This is a word for you. Uh, when my children, who are now 10 and 15, were 3 and 5, I'll never forget, their grandmother called me outside. Uh, she says, I want to talk to you about something. I said, hey, what's going on? She says, I was talking to the kids the other day, and um, they, uh, I asked them, did you know what your parents did for a living? And I said, yeah. And I uh, said, so, well, what did your mom, what did your mom do? Oh, she's like a nurse or a doctor or something like that. I'm like, oh, okay. What does your dad do? He spanks us. <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? I was like, so she gets up in the morning. She doesn't put on scrubs or a stethoscope or anything like that. And y'all know what she does. I get up every morning. I put on a suit. I'm up early. I got the cell phone and these business cards. And I'm on the phone like 39%. It's not going to do it. Have that on my desk, COB. You know, boom, you know, and, and you think I'm a professional spanker. <laughs> but here's the deal. Here's, here's what it says. Like, so, so it really just kind of helped my heart from a dad's standpoint. It's like, man, how am I showing up? Like, I don't feel like I'm doing it that often. But, but is that the foremost and most impactful engagement in my children's life? Is that what they see? And they think that's my, my profession. <laughs> so, so, so it really, just from a father's standpoint, you know, when I come across a passage like this or came across, it's like, okay, Lord, am I really, I mean, obviously I provoke my children. I'm doing something. But I'm not providing the level of development that they deserve because they believe that my career is 
you know, Mr. Discipline. And there was two opportunities in our family to fix that. Number one, I kind of shared the love. I was like, told my wife, I was like, hey, I can't be the only one who's doing the disciplining around here. Moms, I don't know where you're all on that, but I became the sheriff. I became the bad guy because I would come home and she would give me the download on who did what that day. And then I was tasked with officially responding to it. And therefore, I'm not allowed to be a nurse or a doctor. (laughs) So the role that we play in the level of impact that we're having in our children's lives. I see the cops pulling up. Somebody got me on that. Uh, But fathers, we play a, a, a vital role in the way that we model even in that, right? Development alongside discipline. Do, are we disciplining with a view toward true character development, or does it just look like a moment in time where you're just mad and you've just had enough? Even in the way that we discipline, we get a chance to model the gospel. The father, even in church discipline, even in church discipline, the most, the most, the most risque and scary thing in Scripture Right. You got this guy over there in first Corinthians, chapter five, who gets put out of the church for like sleeping with his father's uh, wife, like his mom in law or something like that. Or his, you know, stepmom in law gets put out of the church. But then in a subsequent conversation, Paul goes, "Okay, this person has suffered. We need to bring him back. Discipline, even in its highest level, is done with a view toward recovery, repair, not just a demonstration of force. Dads. And so we get a chance to model the gospel in all of our roles. Servants and employees, it says here, uh, as it talks about servants, and it cautions them not to um, uh, work with eye service if they're bond servants. But it also turns around and tells masters that they need to supervise and lead those who might be servants in their household with a view toward the fact that they are servants of the Most High God. Now, this is interesting because Jesus is classic for this. So when it comes to service... Here is if you are a person who is in a position of service, probably not in anyone's household per se, but if you're in the workplace, we should be serving from a position of loyalty rather than necessity. Matthew 5:16 tells us that we ought to be working in a way where people see our good works and they will glorify our Father which is in heaven, not view us as a brown noser to the boss. When it comes to supervision, we should be leading like a servant and we should be serving like a leader. That sounds like double talk, but Jesus was like the master of this. If you want to gain your life, lose it. If you want to lose your life, gain it. Like, give it away. Uh, he will be first, will be last, and he will be last, will be first. And, and when you look here, when he says supervision, those that are leading, he says, masters, as you're leading your servants, realize that you are also a servant. Do it from that vantage point. Do you remember when Jesus showed up in Capernaum and uh, someone ran up and says, hey, Jesus, there's a guy, uh, this is one of the centurions in town, his uh, uh, his daughter is sick and nigh to death. Can you come to the house? And then Jesus says, yeah, I'll go right, right immediately. And, in, and the, the, the centurion meets and says, hey, hey, you don't need to come out of my house. I am a man under authority. I have servants and I say go and they go. I say do this and they do that. I understand. Can you just say the word and send it to my house? And Jesus goes, just before I do this miracle, I want to let you know that I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. This guy gets it. In his occupation, he learned something about the gospel. He understood within the framework of being a soldier what the Savior's power looked like. None of our environments where we serve and work are are, are off limits for gospel application. Does that make sense? And so then, 
The family has a unique power of deja vu, as I would call it. We give those who would encounter us an opportunity to say, man, I've seen that before. Others, maybe they had a, a parent at distance who had been sharing the gospel with them, but they had never seen it fully applied. Maybe they had a coworker that's been sharing it, but they've never seen it applied. So when they come up close and personal and they see how our household works, your wife is just bringing a fresh batch of cookies during the middle of the game or maybe some nachos or whatever the case may be. And it's like, what is she doing all that for? She see you, he, he, they see you loving her. They see your kids obeying. Uh, and, and even though the kids don't really want to, they just understand that this is an investment. This is for my future. I got to do this. You know, they see that. And it raises something up in the heart that says, where have we seen this before? And maybe your family establishes the initial seeds of what the gospel looks like in application. And someone later shares with them and they go, I've seen this before. I've seen an authentic Christian family before. I've seen the gospel before. I, I, I don't know where, but I've seen the gospel before. This makes sense. And so this is why the Christian family is so powerful. It has an opportunity to shape the workplace, the school, uh, the legislative landscape, because all of the people that leave from our dinner table are going to land somewhere. And whether they land in government or not is irrelevant. Wherever they land, wherever we deploy them, they should be filled with gospel deposits based on how our households ran. And they will be uniquely powerful to induce deja vu in the culture. And so regardless of what uh, end of the paradigm you find yourself, whether you are the one who's sharing the gospel or whether you're the one who's showing the gospel, I think it's super critical um, that we offer both of those analogies to our world. I want to... Um, I want to close with that. No one held up a sign and said, you have five minutes. Um, but I want to close with that, and then we'll, uh, um, uh, we'll, we'll press pause, we'll pray, and then we'll uh, get ready for whatever break we have and then go into our next session. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you and praise you for, again, giving us this brief window into your word. And I beg and ask, oh, holy God and Father, that uh, in any way, in no way have we brought shame to your name, but that we have indeed brought clarity to your scriptures, and that we have allowed the family to see its unique and precious role within the enterprise of shaping the world that the family is not insignificant. It isn't just a dinner table, but it is a platform where the gospel is applied. Lord God, encourage our hearts through it. Enrich us, Lord God, uh, through this understanding. And uh, I pray, oh God, even for the teacher, that if there's fresh opportunity to apply and become more refined in this, that you would show it to me, that I would become even a better dad and husband and a son to my father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.